pleased to have a special speaker with us this morning. Many of you know um, Pastor Monty Dunn, my friend in the ministry. He's the current president of the Missouri Baptist Pastors Conference. I'm the current president-elect. As of Tuesday, I'll be the president of the Missouri Baptist Pastors Conference. But this year, Monty Dunn has uh, put the conference together. And uh, he has, uh, and that's going to be in Springfield, Missouri tomorrow, the pastor's conference is. And he has uh, secured as our keynote speaker, uh, Dr. Steve Lawson, who is the senior pastor of Christ Fellowship Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. He is uh, here uh, with a a fellow staff member, an elder at the church, Tom Gibson, and um, Pastor Jerry Tharp and myself. And and these two men are going to be driving down to Springfield uh, this afternoon, and the uh, conference begins first thing in the morning. I'm an officer. I need to be there early and uh, to help get things ready. But um, uh, Dr. Lawson is a trustee at uh, the Master's Seminary, um, one of our um, heroes, I guess, uh, John MacArthur being the, uh, the president, the chancellor of that, and Dr. Lawson works with him at the seminary. He is the, uh, Dr. Lawson is the author of 11 books, including Famine in the Land, a call for pastors to be involved in expository preaching. Um, these books can be ordered from their internet uh, site. And uh, Dr. Lawson, if you'd make sure that you give us that internet site when you're up here so that we can uh, look at that at Christ Fellowship Church. Um, he is uh, in the Holman uh, Bible Commentary Series, and he's written a commentary on Job, which is no small matter at all, uh, He had, being the oldest book in Scripture and a quite lengthy book. He's also written a uh, commentary on Psalms, chapters 1 through 75, and uh, has just completed chapter 76 through 150, which is still being edited. He is, uh, has participated in the Distinguished Scholar uh, Lecture Series at the Master's Seminary, um, and in his spare time, he probably has a hobby or two. I'm not sure. Dr. Steve Lawson, thank you for being here. Come and share about the supremacy of the Savior with us today at Redbridge Baptist Church. God bless you as you do. Thank you. Thank you, dear brother. Well, thank you, dear brother, for that kind introduction. And uh, I've never been asked to give my webpage uh, address as I step into the pulpit, but uh, cfbcmobile.org. And uh, any of my books are available that way. Also, to let you know, we're very involved in the hurricane relief efforts in the Gulf Coast, and our church has really taken upon themselves to be the host church for uh, almost the region uh, in the Mississippi, Alabama area, and we have churches literally from coast to coast who come to our church, and we put them up, and we take them to the most uh, strategic sites to be involved in the hurricane relief, and you can certainly pray for us in that in any way you would like to participate uh, even John MacArthur's church has used our church as the hurricane relief point. So, enough about me. Now let's uh, look to the Lord's Word together. If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of First Timothy, First Timothy chapter uh, 3. The microphone is on, I know. Okay, very good. <laughs> I missed that day in seminary on how to turn the mic on, so... I've never recovered from that day. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and today I want to speak to you on the supremacy of the Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want to begin by reading the passage 
that will be our focus this morning as we look together into God's Word. First Timothy chapter 3, I want to read verses 14 through 16. Specifically, our study today will look to verse 16. Beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The church today is suffering from an enormous identity crisis regarding what the church is to be. Answer the issue of what the church is to be, and at the same time, you will answer the question what the church is to do. What the church is determines and defines what the church is to do. In other words, the church's identity defines the church's ministry. Ask different people what the church is to be, and you are certain to receive a wide variety of answers. For some, the church is a social club, a place to meet people. It's a place to network, to rendezvous, to socialize, to join a social club or a dinner club. For others, the church is a community center. It's a hub of activities, a place to offer all kinds of options for people, everything from, from bowling to ceramics to, to therapy to theater. And yet for others, the church is a place for politics. It's a political hall. It's a place to register voters, to rally for causes, to lobby politicians, etc., etc., ad nauseum. How you see what the church is to be will define for you what the church is to do. And by accounting to our set, by, by looking to this text today, I think we understand what is the primary identity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will see it at the end of verse 15. This is not the exclusive metaphor that is used in the New Testament, but it is the very theme verse for the book of 1 Timothy, which is the primary pastoral epistle. And so this verse rises above the entire letter of 1 Timothy, which is given to always direct the churches in every place, in every generation, regarding what the church is to be about. This book is designed to put the church in right order. And if the church is to function effectively, it must be designed as God designs the church to be. In fact, we live in a generation in which people are wanting to redefine church. And, and I think that is, is, is smacks of arrogance, quite frankly, because none of us is allowed to redefine the church. The head of the church has died for the church, he has purchased the church, and he is now the head of the church, and the church will function as he has prescribed in his word. It is our place to find our role in the church as God has designed the church to be. And at the end of verse 15, we find what is the central thrust of this entire book of 1 Timothy, and it gives to us, I believe, the primary 
identity of the church. You see it at the end of verse 15. The church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The truth refers to the revealed Word of God. It refers to the full counsel of God. And this is to say the primary ministry of the church, we exist to uphold the truth, the truth of the inspired, the inerrant, and the infallible Word of God. Whatever the Bible says is what the church is to say. Whatever the Bible teaches is what the church is to teach. Whatever the Bible rebukes is what the church is to rebuke. And so we ask the question, what is a pillar and what is a support? And of course, we understand what a pillar is. A pillar plays the role of supporting and upholding the entire edifice. That is the role of the church in regard to the truth. And it is also to be the support. And the support here in verse 15 speaks of the foundation upon which the pillar rests. In other words, the church is to be the champion of the truth. The church is to be the one who upholds the truth in this world, in a world of much darkness. Pillars speak of a strong presentation of the truth, an open presentation of the truth, a most visible presentation of the truth. The church is not to be the closet of the truth. Uh, The church is not to be the back porch of the truth. Uh, There in Ephesus, where Timothy was as he received this letter, there was the very famous temple of Diana that had 127 gold-encrusted pillars that surrounded this massive edifice, and each of these pillars played the primary role of upholding the entire building. Interestingly enough, in our text, in verse 15, pillar is in the singular. I don't think I've ever seen a building that has only one pillar. And what this singularity uh, of usage here refers to is that there is one body of truth that is taught in the Word of God. Uh, There is only one true interpretation of any passage of Scripture. And all of Scripture stands together as one body of divinity. And so we exist in this world of lies and seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. We exist to uphold the truth. Now, the question would be raised, most specifically, what truth? What is to be number one of the message that we as the church uphold? And we find that in verse 16. And verse 15 gives us the picture of what we are to be. We are to be the pillar in support of the truth. And verse 16 uh, identifies for us what is the apex of that truth. It is none other than the message of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at it again in verse 16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness, meaning this is an indisputable fact. Uh, this is a truth that is non-negotiable. It is, a, it is an absolute certainty that the very highest apex of the message that we uphold, that we preach, that we teach, and that we proclaim to the world is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find here in verse 16 a 
wonderful summary of this message. Look at it again. He who was revealed in the flesh, the he obviously referring to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You will notice a certain rhythm, a certain cadence to these lines. And the reason is this is strongly believed to be one of the earliest Christian hymns that was penned in the first century. Uh, There is a certain symmetry, a parallelism, a a uniformity in these lines, a cadence, a, a rhythm. These six lines are a very succinctly worded doctrinal statement. Uh, This was intended to be a creedal hymn, a confession of faith, a Christ-saturated hymn that was written in the early church, was sung in the early church. We have an example of another one in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And this is, it was set to music, was sung in the early church, and as Paul writes Timothy, he draws upon this hymn and places it at this point in his letter to speak to the issue of the primary, the primary message that is to come from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There are many issues that are spoken of in Scripture, but every church is to be known as a church that proclaims the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Some churches come to be known for other things. Some come to be known, for example, as a family church and and are always having series on the family, etc. And there is a place for that in every church. But every church must have as the apex emphasis coming forth from its pulpit and from all of its teachers, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Other churches are known as a prophecy church and want to spend the majority of their time focused upon the second coming of Christ. And I love the book of Revelation. I've preached through it four times in my my ministry over the years. But it is the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death upon the cross, His resurrection, His ascension, to the right hand of God the Father, that is to be the primary focus of every local church. That is what we see here in verse 16. And I'll have to tell you how much my heart this morning has loved worshiping with you in this church as we have sung hymns and choruses that have so magnified the Lord Jesus Christ. You are right on target You need to continue to excel still more in the direction that you are headed. There could be no higher calling, no higher purpose for any congregation or for any group of believers than to be the pillar and support of the truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. Any other message that you would carry would be in a supportive role. This is the main thing. Now, as we look at verse 16, you will notice there are six lines that find themselves in this poetic uh, structure. Even in my New American Standard Bible, it's indented. It's, 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 it's intentionally, even in the typeface, set apart to be shown as a, somewhat of a, of a poem. 
I want you to notice the six lines, and in our time together this morning, I want to walk you through these lines that we might be sharp in our thinking and sharp in our understanding today concerning Christ, and then we will make application at the end. The six lines go as follows. First of all, in the first line, we see the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation of Christ. Look at it in verse 16. He who was revealed